This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. As every autism parent knows, a diagnosis is just the beginning. The next step is to make sense of the bewildering array of challenges, things like constipation, sleep deprivation, irritability that are shared by so many kids on the spectrum, and, of course, conflicting opinions about what to do. The standard practice is to medicate those symptoms, and that often leaves the kids to power through a fog of untreated health conditions. In 2007, the American Academy of Pediatrics encouraged pediatricians to assess and treat underlying medical conditions before prescribing medication for the difficult behaviors of autism spectrum disorder, and they went as far as to say medications have not been proven to correct the core deficits of autism spectrum disorders and are not the primary treatment. They also went on to say, in some cases, medical factors may cause or exacerbate maladaptive behaviors, and recognition and treatment of medical conditions may eliminate the need for psychopharmacological agents. Now, a lot of people would have thought that that would change the way that children on the spectrum are assessed and over-medicated. Unfortunately, it did not. In this part of today's show, we're going to talk about some natural approaches to dealing with kids on the autism spectrum. We'll jump into all of that when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. In 1977, in Johannesburg, South Africa, an eight-year-old boy picked up the game of golf from his father. By the age of nine, he was already outplaying him. The odds of that same boy then making it to the U.S. and European pro golf tours? One in seven million. The odds of the Big Easy winning the Open Championship once and the U.S. Open Championship twice? One in 780 million. The odds of this professional golfer having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 110. Ernie Els encourages you to learn the signs of autism at autismspeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Autism Speaks. It's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Janet Lintella, who's the co-author of The Unprescription for Autism, A Natural Approach to a Calmer, Happier, and More Focused Child. Janet, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tell us your story about how you happened to get into this. It's very intriguing in the, in the beginning of the book. It's actually one of the, one of the prefaces of the book written by somebody else, but it talks about your story, and I'd rather hear that from you. I suppose I got into it the the night my first uh, son was born, and I brought home a baby that, unbeknownst to me, would not sleep well for years. And I just thought I had one of those babies that didn't sleep. He would sleep about 20 to 30 minutes out of every 90, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it was very exhausting, and he had a lot of gastrointestinal symptoms, but he was a happy baby at the time. And then as time went on, and he I think he was about three years old when I began to realize he was 
irritable all the time, and then that progressed to being very angry, and then he became a very aggressive child. And by the time he was five and six years old, it was shocking. He could throw a tantrum and flip a couch over or kick a hole in the wall, and, you know, it was our first child. We didn't know what to do. We didn't know if it was our parenting or or what was going on. And he was so verbal. We used to joke he came out talking. He just talked all the time, and he would never stop talking. And to be honest, autism is not what popped into our mind. My husband's a medical doctor. I'm a chiropractic physician. And nothing we had ever heard about autism, or I guess our our stereotype of autism, fitted what we were seeing in our child. And so it actually took a lot of years to figure out what was going on with him. And, um, you know, a friend put us in touch with some doctors that were doing some cutting-edge research and treatment, and we began to learn, oh, this is a package deal. There's a lot more here going on than mm-hmm. just someone not looking you in the eye. And our son didn't even rock or flap or lose his language, like I say. So it was very confusing for us for a long time. Right. And what are you—you you started right at birth, you said, and— I think most of the people that I've heard describe autism, the symptoms don't show up until 18 months or two years or something. And I mean, how do you, do you think that they can look back and say, "Oh yeah, there was something here before then," or is well, your I don't, or you, how, class, how are you doing it? The autism symptoms that we're talking about, for example, I'm not talking about a newborn that was rocking or flapping or or not speaking. Our son didn't do those things. Um, he, in fact, didn't meet any of the screening criteria, except I do remember he didn't wave bye-bye or wave hello to people uh, when he was you know, less than a year old, and that was the only thing we noticed. But there are you know, a large subset of people on the spectrum that we now know through the last two to three decades of research have gastrointestinal or immune symptoms, and that's what I'm talking about that I noticed. I mean, Bringing home a baby the first day, I can't say he was autistic the first day, but he was different health-wise from the first day. And many people that come to my center, you know, we start out with doing our intake questionnaire. We start out with the pregnancy and the birth, and a lot of them start out with very fussy, colicky babies who couldn't sleep, who were hyperactive, who caught every cold coming and going, or the opposite, never got sick. You know, so it's, it's health issues is mainly what my book deals with. Nothing in my book actually treats autism itself or cures it or anything like that. It's the associated health issues of the spectrum. Okay. Let's talk about tax sitting. I think that's it's such a, a funny thing that just at the beginning, of just so those who don't happen to have the book in front of them, rule number one, if you're sitting on a tack, it takes a lot of aspirin to make it feel good. The appropriate treatment for tack sitting is tack removal. That's just that's very... A very funny way of looking at it, I mean, and and very true way of looking at it. So, what? How are you applying that to autism? Well, what's happening is um, when you have a child on the spectrum, like I say, a lot of them have these physical issues. We have children that can't sleep well. The constipation is is very common on the spectrum. Up to eighty some percent might have the constipation. So they can't sleep, they can't poop, they don't feel well, they have acid reflux with this GI dysfunction, and it makes them very irritable. And for especially the ones who can't express it, and even a small verbal child can't really express that level of chronic discomfort or pain, it comes out as irritability, aggression, or even violence. And that's really not part of autism. So what happens when we take our child to the doctor and we say, he can't sleep, we're given 
a sleeping prescription for a pill. Can't poop, our child's put on long-term laxatives. Can't behave, irritable, aggressive. We're putting children as young as two years old on antipsychotics that haven't even been tested in children that young. And so they're trying to treat the irritability and trying to treat the sleeplessness, but they're not asking the right question. These pills don't pull the tack out of his hind end. <laughs> they, they help him sleep or poop or behave, but no one's saying, why can't they sleep? Why are they irritable? Why are they, you know, acting like this? And it's turning out that this is pretty much pain behavior from gastrointestinal dysfunction. There can be other reasons, but the common reason is gastrointestinal dysfunction. Lots and lots of acid reflux mm -hmm. that people aren't even suspecting in their child. That's why they can't sleep. Right. And that's why they're grumpy. Now you've got some theories that are that it could be enzymes and that probiotics can help and there's antimicrobial things. What's going on there that's causing these things? Some that of it's just a, a genetic tendency. The, this gastrointestinal dysfunction, they haven't entirely nailed it down yet. Of course, the research is ongoing. But the research is showing more than half the kids on the spectrum aren't making enough digestive enzymes. And so that's like, you know, oil for an engine. Your, your GI tract isn't going to work well or get their nutrition without digestive enzymes. It's also showing, and it seems to be genetic at the moment, that there's a tendency not to have the right mix of beneficial bacteria or not have enough beneficial bacteria. And that, again, is essential for digestion and also the immune system. The bulk of our immune system is in the gut. And so these two simple things, um, you know, the digestive enzymes and the probiotics are like changing, you know, the oil in, in an engine. And the medications are like washing the car. <laughs> so one kind of makes things look better and seem better, but the other one is what they really, truly need. And I go to the research every time to see what they need. Now, when you talk about it being genetic, did you or your husband have GI issues as well, either as kids or as adults? Not that we can actually nailed down, but you know, throughout our family trees, we see things like that. And we, you know, the genetic package, it's not just GI stuff. There's more anxiety and depression, OCD, panic attacks, tick disorders. We do see that throughout both our family trees. And um, they're more prone to mood disorders like um, bipolar and schizophrenia and things like that. So um, not necessarily in ourselves. And I think that's sort of took it by surprise. We didn't really have those issues ourselves, but it is throughout our tree, I guess. Now, you said that about 80% of autistic kids or kids on the spectrum have some sort of GI issues. That just seems like something we would have heard about a lot before. Well, we do hear about it a lot. Now, 15 years ago when we would talk about um, tummy troubles or constipation, people would get a blank look on their face and go, what does you know constipation or acid reflux have to do with autism? It was a complete disconnect, really baffling for them. And nowadays, everyone just nods their head and goes, oh, yeah, of course, yeah. And maybe it's because I'm in the autism world and these are autism parents I'm talking to and they've been searching the Internet or talking to specialists. But it is very common, and people in the autism world are well aware of it now. Okay. And, and is it something that people have got a sense of where it comes from? Again, you said it's genetic, but it just seems so, you know, for somebody who's not dealing with this on a daily level, it just seems odd. Well, and part of it's our lifestyle. I mean, 
we have antibiotics now. Those are great drugs. You know, I, I take them if I need them. They kill the bad germs, but they also kill our good bacteria. We right. have a lot more C-sections these days, and the research is showing the babies that are born via C-section, and I'm a three-C-section mom, they don't have nearly the beneficial bacteria or the best mix of them that a child that comes through the birth canal would have. And this results in a lot of, I mean, there's a ton of babies nowadays on acid reflux medications. Hmm. Way more, I mean, you just never heard about it when I was growing up, but it's very common now for babies and children to be on acid reflux medication. Talking with Janet Lintel, who's the author of The Unprescription for Autism, A Natural Approach for a Calmer, Happier, and More Focused Child. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking about The Unprescription for Autism. I'm Armin Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Your kids are going for a bike ride. You make sure they wear a helmet. They insist on skateboarding. Add knee pads and elbow pads, too. Swimming in the pool, water wings, goggles, earplugs. If we could pack our kids in bubble wrap, we'd do it. Because we love them, and we want to protect them. This is Lisa Edelstein with some very important news. Now there's an easy way to protect your kids three times a day. Choose healthy foods. Research has shown that a vegetarian diet rich in fruits, vegetables, and whole grains can help protect our kids against obesity. It can even help keep them from developing heart disease or cancer when they grow up. My friends at The Cancer Project are just waiting to hear from you so they can send you important information on how to protect your children from the inside out. Just log on to cancerproject.org or call 866-906-WELL. That's 866-906-WELL. This message brought to you by The Cancer Project. Hands can do incredible things. This is the sound of 326 hands playing Mozart. This is the sound of 10,942 hands showing appreciation. 64 hands building a house for the homeless. 142 hands swimming a triathlon. 18 hands winning the big game. And this is the sound of two hands helping to save a life. It's called Hands Only CPR and it's recommended by the American Heart Association. If an adult suddenly collapses, call 911, then push hard and fast in the center of their chest until help arrives. It's incredibly easy and effective. Hands can do incredible things, but nothing compares to using them to help save a life. Find out more about this latest method of CPR at handsonlycpr.org. A message from the American Heart Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Janet Lintilla, who's the co-author with Martha Murphy of The Unprescription for Autism, A Natural Approach for a Calmer, Happier, and More Focused Child. So thus far, Janet, we've been talking about the, the why and your process of learning and figuring out what all these things are about and identifying symptoms that, that you really didn't, hadn't heard of before. Um, so now I think we've got to talk about, as the book is divided up, what we're going to do about this stuff. So, you know, we've we've had guests on the show talking about uh, what's going on in the in the microbiota in in the gut and probiotics and things. But what how so? How do you make a diagnosis first of all of what's wrong with the gut, and then what do we do about that once you have that diagnosis? Well, I I go through a very uh, long screening process. Uh, my intake questionnaire is probably eighteen or twenty pages long. 
And again, based on the science and the research that's been emerging, I ask lots of questions. And people always seem a little surprised to see a, a color stool chart in my questionnaire where I'm asking about, you know, what types of uh, poop their child might have or the gassiness of their child or how often they have a bowel movement. I ask about their sleep patterns and just all kinds of stuff. And so um, I don't exactly assign a diagnosis. Like I'm not going to diagnose a child with acid reflux, but I'll say, you know, I suspect acid reflux is probably what's keeping your child up. Let's do some good GI support. So I'm not exactly treating acid reflux. I'm providing support, gastrointestinal support, immune support, anything that's going to balance that child's health. I do run lab tests if I need to. Uh, we run a lot of stool and urine tests here to see what they're lacking or what might help support more vibrant health for them. Yeah, one of the frustrating things, I have to say, about the, the whole probiotic movement, if you want to call it that, is that you know if you go to Costco or you go to a health food store, it says probiotics. and Or maybe there's 10 different kinds of bacteria that are in there, or there's you know, 25 billion or 6 billion or however many. You know, it, it's so impossible for somebody who doesn't know what they're doing exactly, and it seems like it's also hard for people who do know what they're doing, to figure out exactly which ones you're low in and how much you need to get things up to the optimal level. You know, we have so many millions of microbes in our body and, and hundreds of different strains and some people have this attitude of let's wait and study each strain individually and see what happens when we give a single strain. But I like to think of our development throughout history as human beings. And, you know, we used to eat a diet rich in living microbes. We ate fermented foods, um, kefir, kombucha, sauerkraut, kimchi. Every culture seems to have some kind of fermented food that they incorporate. And... We get a lot of great results by giving blends. I don't focus on just one blend. I tell my, my patients to mix it up and buy different blends. But the key for me is you have to get something that's going to make it alive through the stomach acid. Uh, my experts think about 70% of probiotics that we purchase die in the stomach acid. So it's like, oh, you know, <laughs> if yeah, it doesn't arrive alive, it doesn't matter how fabulous the strains are or how right. many different strains you have. So I always tell people you've got to look for a delivery system that guarantees a you know, live arrival in the small intestine. That's the key for me. And as far as getting picky about strains yet, I don't think we're there to just do one or two specific tr strains for yeah. stuff. Well, I'm just wondering, I mean, speaking of delivery systems, I mean, wouldn't it make sense to go the other direction? Oh, I see what you're saying. <laughs> I mean, um, if it's, you know, that avoids the whole stomach acid issue and it can go straight to where it needs to go right gosh i haven't thought about that you, you're you're taking a completely different angle here might have more of an ick factor though <laughs> i guess well you know not not as much of an ick factor as as uh, fecal transplants which oh, i wow have, that has that the first time i heard about those i just could not believe my ears i've gotten a little more used to it over the years and it's actually holding out a lot of promise i, I don't know, know anyone that, who's at those right for I me mean, for, for those of you who didn't you can, well, if you listen to the words fecal transplant, you kind of you can imagine what that is. And there is a major ick factor, but apparently, you know, people who have been had their intestinal flora wiped out can get somebody else's that from a healthy person, or or you can have somebody you can take a healthy person's 
fecal matter and bring it into somebody who's unhealthy and it can help to replace what's uh, you know what's been damaged and it, it's remarkable but it really yeah definitely an ick factor and, but that alone tells us there's got to be something to it how how beneficial having the correct microbiome balance is to our health i hear that it can reset immune systems that aren't doing well i believe it's holding some promise for ms and things like that really strong immune problems there yeah, which is is pretty amazing. So I mean, if it can if it can work, but so have you have you seen anything in the research that you've been looking at that shows that there might be some application for autism? Well, I hear about it all the time at autism conferences, and I believe it's being done privately. I, I believe the studies are ongoing. It takes a while to accumulate that kind of data in large enough numbers to be significant. So I'm expecting at any time someone's going to pop up and go, hey, you know, or several people are going to pop up and go, look at the results of these fecal transplant trials that we've been running. And I'm looking forward to it, not to having one, but to, to reading <laughs> the information. Well, yeah. it's, uh, it, well, it's, it's medical science, and it's pretty cool. I mean, there's all sorts of uh, things that, you know, if you think back 20 years ago, stuff that people would have said, eh, that's disgusting, which we do now without really thinking about it. Um, you, you talk in the book something that rarely comes up in books about autism, which is having to do with the adults who are on the spectrum. Because the, these problems don't go away, do they? They just continue on. They do not. In fact, they sort of drop off their radar. People age out of the system of government services that are available, and families are just struggling along trying to take care of them themselves, aging parents. And like I say in the book, the elephant in the room is, what's going to happen when I'm gone? That's running through all of our minds. And even my son now, who is so much, you know, he, he is much higher functioning. We didn't cure autism or anything, but these health issues greatly affect independence and function. So he's in college. He's driving. He's an Eagle Scout. We couldn't be happier, but there's still challenges for him. And it just makes me want to live forever and always be there for him. So that. Yeah, it's uh, whenever I post a piece on Facebook about adults with autism, people chime in and go, thank you for not forgetting these kids that have grown up and become adults. They spend more of their life as an adult with autism than a child. Yeah. You know, I was just talking to my daughter about this the, the other day about, I remember thinking back to when I was a kid and, and wondering now, where were all the kids with autism? And the solution that was kind of the, the accepted one was to institutionalize them, just take them out of the system altogether. So there are probably still a lot of people who have just been warehoused someplace and they never have gotten the the help that they need. That then some you know, some other issues could have been dealt with. Yes, I, I think a lot of them were institutionalized and nowadays they, they don't do that anymore where there's this push to have them live independently, which I love, and by the way, well, that's in great, the community yeah. and have them adapt to the community. But I also think the community is going to have to adapt to them. A lot of our behavior therapies are aimed at getting them to behave just like a neurotypical or a typically developing person. And I think we ought to meet them halfway and say, why can't we let some of that autisticness shine through? Of course, support skill deficits or health challenges, but let's accept their differences and celebrate, gosh, that autistic brain can be so awesome and, and just approach things so differently. I think we're missing a really great resource here. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's it's coming out in popular media a little bit. Every once in a while there's an autistic character who, and sometimes they're not using it 
properly, but you know their their boss is having them memorize long strings of numbers so that they don't have to write down the passwords to things or or whatever. But it it becomes a little stereotypical. But yeah, yeah. There, there's definitely a place for people with different capabilities. Yeah. You know, my my son that has um, Asperger's syndrome, he is interested in acting, and he'll go, Mom, do you think I could be an actor? And I said, Honey, almost every show these days has an autistic character, and you don't even have to study for it. You know, you've got it nailed. <laughs> so um, I love telling him that. Well, I've been talking with Janet Lintilla, who's the author of The Unprescription for Autism, A Natural Approach for a Calmer, Happier, and More Focused Child. You mentioned uh, posting things on Facebook. What's that page? Autism Health. So Facebook.com slash Autism Health. Well, on Facebook, if you just search for Autism Health, our clinic page should pop up. Our website is loveautismhealth.com. Okay. Janet, thank you very much. Great to have you. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Careful at the party, hon. Remember what we talked about? I know, Mom. No alcohol, right? Yeah, I know. Honey, seriously, I know you're in high school now, but you're still too young to drink, and you're still my daughter. I don't want anything happening to you. I know. I know. Really? Drinking is different with kids. You're still growing. You're still developing. It messes with your judgment. I know. Teenagers know everything. So talk about underage drinking before they know it all, before they're teens. And you could do things that, honey, trust me, if you drink, you could do things you don't really want to do that I don't want you to do. Yeah, Mom, I know. Listen, I'm just trying to protect you, all right? If you're a grown woman, it's different, but you're not. I know, okay? I know. Start talking before they start drinking. And keep talking. To learn more about the dangers of underage drinking and what to say to your kids, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. Now, we talk a lot about puberty and girls because it's so much more mysterious than puberty and boys, but a lot of people don't really quite get what's going on with boys either. Dear Mr. Dad, I'm a widowed mother of two boys, one of whom just started puberty. I've been agonizing over a birds and bees talk, but I'm not sure I'm the right person to deliver it. Having lived through puberty myself, I'm pretty familiar with what girls go through, but I don't know nearly enough about boys' experience. One thing I do know is that I barely recognize my son anymore. What do I need to know about boys' puberty, and is there anything I can do? Nature does some pretty amazing things, like turning caterpillars into butterflies and pollywogs into frogs. What those and other dramatic examples of metamorphosis have in common is that youngsters are being transformed into adults, and when animals become adults, the first thing they do is start making babies. Same goes for humans, although we generally hold off on the whole baby-making thing for a few years. Right now, hormones are tearing through your son's body and brain, getting him ready to reproduce. For boys, puberty typically begins at age 11 or 12, although sometimes as early as 9 or as late as 14. Over the course of 2 to 5 years, your son's penis and scrotum will get bigger, he'll start sprouting pubic and underarm hair, and his voice will get deeper, and he may develop acne. Most people know how puberty changes girls and make the incorrect assumption that it's no big deal for boys. Not so. For example, in the not-too-distant future, he'll have his first wet dream, which he'll probably either find confusing or frightening. He may worry that he had an accident in bed or that there's something terribly wrong with him. He may also discover masturbation. One good thing that could come of this is that he'll end up doing his own laundry for a while. 
And let's not forget about those spontaneous erections that pop up at the most inopportune times like the middle of English class or lunch, usually when there are lots of other people around. Because males tend to be competitive, your son may be constantly comparing himself to his friends. And if some of them are developing more quickly than he is, he may feel inadequate. Locker rooms, I've got to tell you, are a terrible place for boys who are lagging behind. While your son's puberty is going to be tough on him, it can also bring up all sorts of conflicting emotions and may not be all that easy for you either. After all, your little boy is becoming a man. Right now, what he needs from you is information, patience, and reassurance that what he's going through is normal. By the time girls reach puberty, they've been exposed to all sorts of magazine articles and books that have prepared them at least a little bit for puberty, but there is precious little out there for boys. One good resource, though, is What's Happening to My Body book for Boys by Linda Medeiros. So make a point to ask your son whether he has any questions about how his body is changing and set aside some time to answer them. Be prepared for a little rejection, though. Chances are pretty slim that your son will want to discuss puberty with you, especially anything having to do with sex or physical changes or girls. For that reason, ask an adult male friend or relative to help out. If either you or your son is too embarrassed to have the conversation, he'll go looking for answers elsewhere. And the last place you want a young boy to be is online Googling words like sex. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.